Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Good morning to you. You're now tuned to Future Sense here with myself, Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Morning, Steve. Good morning, Nick. How are you this morning? I'm very good. I'm fine. It's a beaut- It's lovely to come out at this time for our show, and it's actually morning when we get up. That's so right. Good- Daylight saving finished yesterday. Kind of enjoyed that. Yeah. Indeed. And, uh, and we're back in sync with the sunrise again, which is back lovely. Back in sync with the sunrise. Um, talking about the weather, the weather for, the, for today, sunny, and looks beautiful out there. Sunny areas of fog inland this morning that's already passed. Light winds. And daytime maximum temperatures around 30 degrees for Byron 27, Lismore 31, Grafton 33, Ballina 29, and Tweed Heads 28 degrees today. And for tomorrow, mostly sunny. A little bit of rain coming in on Wednesday and Thursday, which is good to have, um, but it's very beautiful out there this morning. Um, now, we've got a pretty interesting show today. We're going to be talking in about uh, 20 minutes or so to, uh, to Michael Garfield from Santa Fe. Oh, he's in Santa Fe. He's in he, Santa Fe, yeah. Mm. Um, friend and fellow futurist. Fellow, fellow futurist. Who's, um, who's well read on integral theory and spiral dynamics, and mm. he speaks our language. Uh, he's also a paleontologist, uh, and um, his day job is communications strategist for the Santa Fe Institute, which is the world's preeminent complex systems science research organization. Very interesting. Yeah, last time I caught up with Michael was in Austin, Texas, when he was living there, and he just moved uh, not long ago, actually, to Santa Fe to take up that new position. Mm. Uh, he's also a host and producer of a podcast himself called Future Fossils. I guess that refers to his paleontology. Yeah. Um, and has uh, written, uh, continues by night, he writes the speculative non-fiction essay series, How to Live in the Future, about human technology, co-evolution, and the future of the biosphere and other stuff too. Pretty interesting dude indeed. Yeah, interesting the interesting paleontology which led to thinking about the future, huh? Yes, and talking about paleontology just quickly too, I thought maybe it's appropriate. You might have seen the ABC news report about researchers uncovering the 66 million year old fish fossils from the day that the dinosaurs died. We might get his view on that too, but I think this is a fascinating little piece out the other day because it's saying that they have now been able to take a literally a, a fossilized snapshot of the day of the very day nearly 66 million years ago when an asteroid smacked into the earth fire rained from the sky and the ground shook far worse than any modern earthquake how can they do that? that's extraordinary well i think the point they're making is that it happened in one day like in one day the entire earth was transformed from this massive collision and the, the heat and the waves and all the rest of it yeah um Very and it, it's kind of important that we see that these things do actually happen on this planet it is important and it made me think of the younger dryas uh, event which supposedly happened roughly about twelve thousand years ago where something very very similar occurred mm. a meteor smacked into the earth and created 
floods and tidal waves and most likely gave rise to the to famous flood stories which come from all cultures. Mm, the Ark. Indeed. The Ark of the Covenant. Oh, not the Ark. The Ark. The other Ark. One of those <laughs> <That's> Arks. <laughs> Let's start with some music. So we're talking to Michael Garfield. We've got some other important things too. We're going to talk a little bit about 5G, um, the fifth generation. Uh, yeah, we, we've been waiting to hear about trials yeah. and, yes. and there's some recent news about uh, a trial at they tried to do in Brussels, which was rejected. Absolutely. And uh, the first picture of uh, the first black hole, supposedly, is going to be released in a couple of days. We might mention that and talk a little bit about that and a little bit about um, the possibility of a hyper-crash. We're always talking about the fragility of the current system. That's, I guess, one of the reasons we're sitting in these chairs to really talk about just that. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate and spiral up. Yes, it's 9.23 here, and uh, very shortly we'll be talking to Michael Garfield from uh, America, from the US. He's a paleontologist and a futurist and much more. Uh, a couple of small things. We've just been uh, alerted to uh, a vegan uh, protest going on in Melbourne CBD at the moment. Interesting. What can we know about this? 3AW breakfast is reporting from down there. Yeah, don't know much. Just saw some tweets uh, Ross Hill sent through to us. G'day, just, Ross. Uh, uh, thanks, Ross. And um, what I thought was interesting from the photo that I saw was the way that they're protesting. Instead of being in a, a large sort of mm. concentrated a group clump. like most protests, they are spread out uh, across the the road or down the road, blocking the road yeah. uh, with you know what looked like you know twenty or thirty meters between each individual yes. holding a sign, which of course makes it much harder for uh, law enforcement to uh, control them if they're spread out over a large distance. This is, uh, so is this an example of the wisdom of crowds? Well, it could be, yeah. yeah I think it's quite a quite an intelligent way to bring traffic to a standstill and uh, and remain less vulnerable to, uh, to action by exactly. others. Exactly, true. And there's also some other demonstrations, apparently, uh, at abattoirs around the country. It's a, it's a strong thing, veganism, and I, I certainly support the, the idea that we shouldn't be eating as many animals as we do. And a, a veganism, of course, means you don't eat any animals, including, including even the honey from the bee, which I personally can't get on board with. But I certainly agree that we, uh, you know, we, we, did, we do need on the planet probably to eat less meat. But the, the, uh, the almost militaristic style, I hesitate to use that word, of uh, vegan activists is, uh, is a strong response, isn't it? And how, how would we configure that in terms uh, of that? Look, um, you know, from, a, from a developmental psychology point of view, you're talking about conformism. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a, a shared belief and uh, a feeling you know, within a group that everybody needs to conform to that belief. And in this case, a feeling that everybody outside the group also needs to conform to the belief. And it just depends, you know, it's kind of like a spectrum as to how strongly that belief is held mm. and uh, impressed upon others. But, but it's the kind of, uh, these conformist um, worldviews, of course, belong in the community side of the evolutionary spiral so we're talking about the even numbered systems in Claire Graves' model yeah. uh, you know which have been tribalism and uh, authoritarianism and now the emerging relativism yes um, and so uh, you you know you really need to talk to the individuals involved to get a, a a true analysis of which one of those systems is really driving mm. the behavior. Um, but we know f- for example that the, the fourth system the absolutistic way of being human, can, has a tendency or can be taken to an extreme and then it turns into a, a type of fundamentalism which you know we've seen behind a, a lot of 
um, conflict in the world uh, throughout history. And uh, in this case, you know, it, the, the conformist belief is being expressed in a very peaceful way. Mm. Uh, so that suggests it's more likely to come from the emerging relativistic postmodern mm. Uh, yes. We should actually, before we talk to Michael Garfield, we're going to give a brief sketch about Claire W. Grazer's work in yeah. terms of those layers because we're going to yeah, probably so be talking from that um, place a little bit. Michael, I think, is, is uh, used to using the code, the coloured code from the Spiral Dynamics book. Yeah. And so I just wanted to really briefly explain that the, the modern scientific industrial paradigm, which we're moving out of at the mm. moment, is, is coded orange in yeah. Spiral Dynamics. So you might hear us talking about orange. We're talking about the, the old paradigm. Yeah. In that case, uh, going back another paradigm to the absolutistic uh, authoritarian mm. uh, agricultural era or paradigm, uh, that's coded blue. So blue to orange, modern, scientific, industrial, and then green is the emerging, uh, some call it postmodern. Some people I think might even be calling it post-postmodern. Um, but relativistic, human values-centered, network-centric. Uh, and then we have the big leap into second tier, and the first layer in second tier is coded yellow, yeah. uh, and then turquoise is the second layer in second tier. So so um, from the, the authoritarian blue to the modern orange to the relativistic green, and then into second tier yellow. Mm, which is essentially where most people on the planet are in one of those four... Um, layers across that spectrum. Across sure, that spectrum, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got a text in just about the uh, the vegan um, uh, protest down there in Melbourne. Uh, a listeners texted in, "Thank you for that." The protests have been organised to mark the one year anniversary of the release of the documentary Dominion, Dominion, which looks into practices employed daily on Australian livestock farms. It's an Australian wide right. Today, so there yeah, you go. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Good purpose I'm, for that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Thanks. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on BayFM. Yes, it's uh, 9.34 here on BayFM on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and myself, Nick Jeans. And it's a great pleasure to welcome our guest this morning all the way from Santa Fe. Well, he's actually in Santa Fe in New Mexico in the United States. Poet, philosopher, paleontologist, futurist Michael Garfield who uh, seeks to restore soul to futurism like that and midwifing new myths that can cultivate the curiosity and play we'll need to thrive in our accelerating age. He's also the host and producer of Future Fossils podcast devoted to the integration of art, science and philosophy, a transdisciplinary approach to uh, our age of planetary crisis and renaissance. And uh, in the daytime, he works uh, as a communication strategist for the Santa Fe Institute, the world's preeminent complex systems science research organization. And by night, he writes the speculative non-fiction essay series, How to Live in the Future, about human technology, co-evolution and the future of the biosphere. So pretty interesting chap and a great pleasure to welcome Michael Garfield to Bay FM here in Byron Bay. Good day, Michael. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> Good. <laughs> There's an introduction for you. <laughs> Good to have you. Yeah, uh, thanks. Good to have you on the show, mate. Um, it's been a while since we had a chat, uh, apart from our catch-up on the weekend. <laughs> Um, we were just yes, chatting off air. Two years. Yeah, yeah, it must be two years, yeah. Um, we are just chatting off air about this uh, recent article about the 66 million-year-old fish fossils uh, from the uh, suspected asteroid impact. Mm. Um, tell us about that. What you, what's your uh, view on that from a, a paleontologist's perspective? Well, it's, you know, it's an interesting case. I mean, I, uh, I, I was a student under Robert Bacher, who was... Uh, kind of the the rogue loner paleontologist 
who was, you know, largely responsible for changing the brand and the image of dinosaurs back in the 80s and 90s from, <laughs> you know, these these like sluggish, uh, cold-blooded things to these, you know, hot-blooded, family-living, active, dynamic I, creatures. Come to think of it, you know, I can see the big image change there now. I, 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 that really did happen, didn't it? That's great. <laughs> Yeah, and you know he uh, he wrote this book Dinosaur Heresies that I that I got as a as a kid when I was way too young to be reading stuff like that, and uh, and then you know he consulted on Jurassic Park. But anyway, the point is that that you know Bacher was um, he was really he was a crime scene investigator. You know, like he he was not somebody that was just blowing fossils out of hillsides. He was really looking at the way that he could reconstruct the lives and the landscapes and the ecosystems of these creatures using very nuanced and, uh, you know, subtle techniques, the collection of, of broken teeth that the animals lost while eating so that he was able to track, you know, seasonal feeding patterns, uh, even when the, the sedimentary record of these creatures would not resolve, uh, you know, like you get like a hundred year or a thousand year flood. And so you can't really make out uh, in some respects what's really going on in like an annual basis, but he was nonetheless able to find these really nuanced ways of doing that. And he always, he always had an objection to the, the asteroid impact hypothesis for dinosaur extinction not that it didn't happen. I mean, the evidence is very, very strong that it did. And this this local site uh, is a really excellent example of that, where you're seeing the molten glass yes. that got forced into the into the gills of all of these fish by this tsunami created by the asteroid impact in Mexico. Yeah. But you know, he really, you know, he uh, he was an advocate of a, a theory of mass extinctions that has since come to be called the press pulse theory which is just that, you know, we look, we look for these like silver bullet, these fabulous explanations, you know, something that would look good on television. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the asteroid impact has been, you know, rendered with computer graphics, you know, probably hundreds of times for various documentaries. It's a spectacular event. Yeah. Um, and, and would I be right in saying that that asteroid impact is what created the Gulf of Mexico? Is that the thought? Uh, the uh, the Chicxulub crater. Um, there was already, there was already uh, not the Gulf of Mexico per se, because right. that, that is that's more uh, the, the the joining of North and South America. Yeah. You know, and the land bridge created by that. But there is, you know, there is a, a you know an enormous amount of displaced land in that in that uh, area. But you know, the the thing is that. There was also around the same time uh, in India, there was a two million year long volcanic eruption. Wow. That, you know, and there were there were the formation of new land bridges that were, you know, leading to the migrations of animals between continents, spreading disease. You know, there were there were a lot of different things going on at the time. And, you know, Bakker, his his. Uh, you know, critique of this was a uh, Luis Alvarez, uh, the Alvarez father-son team that that first found the evidence um, for this this impact in a layer of of radioactive uh, dirt all around the world. This you know that there's this layer of iridium, which yeah. is a radioactive isotope that we only find in meteor impacts and volcanic eruptions. Yeah. Uh, and they found this thing, and you know he's like, well, of course, of course, you know this. This is not a fun place to be, <laughs> 66 million years ago. Obviously, but, yeah. 
you know, but like at the same time, uh, you know, we're talking about the extinction of not just the dinosaurs, but of 75% of life on earth. Mm, yeah. And if you look at every other mass extinction on the planet, um, you know, the, the one that, that led to the age of dinosaurs, the Permian extinction, which was even more catastrophic and terrible, um, had to do a lot more with volcanoes and, yes. and the, or, you know, the release of methane gas. And so, you know, it, you know, I grew up kind of trained to think about things as having more than one cause you know that, yeah that's really that it's important not, it's not it's not so simple you know it's it, it doesn't make sense for us mm. as as like potent of an image as it is yeah that it's sort of uh you know it's misleading to say that this one yeah event was the sole contributor that's right to this planet which, which is a rather rather good analog of uh, of life on earth right now isn't it and just on that point the volcanic activity i think it's rather important there's a piece that a listener has texted in just now this morning uh from national geographic from from last year uh good sort of straight publication but some good stuff in there but it's also talks about uh that eruptions plus uh, volcanic eruptions plus the asteroid uh caused a one-two punch that's what their theory the vulcan is the vulcan and provided the first strike, weakening the climate so much that a meteor, the more deafening blow, was able to spell disaster for Tyrannosaurus rex and its late Cretaceous kin. So I guess that's more, um, more likely it's in the scenario, more complex scenario. Yeah, and you know, there's 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 other layers of complexity to this. I mean, there is, uh, it's it's still somewhat controversial, but there's there's mounting evidence that entire lineages of organisms become you know, kind of specialized to a particular ecological milieu. And then uh, the world changes and they're not, you know, due to the, the sort of bias in, inherent in the way that their genes regulate the development of that organism, they've sort of painted themselves into a corner. And the, the older and the more specialized uh, a, a lineage of organisms becomes, the less flexible it is it's sort of a, a you know a genetic senescence you know an aging of entire clades of creatures and yeah very pretty, interesting that's fascinating it's, it's pretty good you know i know that you like talking about psychedelics on this show and the, the you know it's i think it's worth mentioning that you know the dinosaurs uh they you know they may not you know the the, the sort of blooming the, the literal blooming of, of flowering plants about halfway through the age of dinosaurs, um, which then led to a, uh, you know, a, a, a whole suite of new niches, new opportunities for uh, psychedelic substances to emerge as, as uh, you know, ways of, of confusing the you know, predators of various types of plants and fungi. Yeah, um, an increase in novelty. There's... <laughs> Yeah, there's 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 a great there's a great uh, I think there's 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 some research that suggests that you know the the modern relatives of dinosaurs, um, birds and crocodiles mm. lack taste aversion. They lack the ability to taste something and know that it's it's bad, mm. and then and and then like learn not to eat it. And so you know that there is um, you know we have trapped in amber. Uh, evidence of uh, psychedelic ergot fungus from the age of dinosaurs and you know I, I, I think it's it's kind of interesting to think that you know that uh, about halfway through the, the age of dinosaurs there was a there was a smaller but still significant extinction uh, in which creatures like stegosaurus kind of phased out 
um, around the time of the, the flowering plants mm. and that it was the dinosaurs sort of were already in decline through the last half of their their reign in terms of species diversity and and their ability to adapt to the rapidly changing ecosystem that was sort of uh, catalyzed by the emergence of flowering plants. Yeah, interesting. You know, and that, they, they may have been slowly poisoning themselves yeah, yeah. for 100 million years. Well, <laughs> and this is a topic that's extremely important to us and our own species at the moment as we're facing you know, radical changes in our life conditions, in our environment, the earth systems and those sorts of things. And and our, our capacity to uh, transit through this period of, of rapid disruptive change is going to be a, a direct function of our ability to sense and uh, learn and act and, and adapt, you know, as a species to these new conditions, hey? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I, I gave a talk a couple of years ago at the Global Eclipse Gathering in Oregon where, I, you know, I compared the emergence of flowering plants and pollinators to the emergence of uh, mobile devices mm. and okay. and like social networks and yeah. and how you know we're we're at this point now where uh, you know we, we tend to think of creation and destruction as separate things but it's really a matter of for whom is it creation and for whom is it destruction like who has the the flexibility not just the resilience but the the adaptability to adjust to these radically evolve, like very rapidly evolving contexts, you know, and, yeah. and I think that there's, you know, there's, there's a, there are a lot of things that have proven to be robust and to, to be able to like surf the singularity as it were. Uh, and a lot of things in both culturally and biologically that are falling by the wayside. But I do think it's a mistake to think of our age merely in terms of the catastrophic loss of biodiversity that we are, you know, we are causing to the systems that when there are, there are so many new forms of diversity that uh, are springing up in their stead, you know, and I think that there have to be kind of better ways, more more nuanced ways of talking about uh, comparing these kinds of diversity. Yeah. Like, you know, do we really do we really want, um, you know, do do we want like for example, like ecologists, you know, they're not by and large uh, conservation ecologists are moving out of this sort of conservative view uh where we're trying to restore the ecosystems that human beings themselves actually created thousands of years ago um you know this sort of british parkland fantasy of of eden yeah. you know a lost romantic nature and that's just not the case like we've been living in a in an environment that has been shaped by dynamic interactions between plants and animals and mm. fungi for and bacteria and other you know microbial organisms for you know since the very beginning yeah absolutely so, you there's, know, a, modern... there's a there's a ton of stuff to unpack from from what you've uh, yeah, just yeah, said yeah, so, yeah. so so maybe yeah, uh, yeah yeah we should uh, i'm also playing because uh, because just for our listeners who are hearing you from a long way away you've also been here in australia and you had quite a connection to our our, our good friend uh, danny schreiber before he passed away at starseed gardens and i'm playing 
playing in the background is a little bit of your piece of music called Listening to Plants, as you're talking about this, uh, that you made here in Byron Bay. It's playing that you probably you can't hear it, but playing in the background is a little bit right now. So that connection that you have between, uh, as you're talking about, the, the, the various kingdoms and uh, particularly the, 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 the biome, the gut biome, is, uh, of course, Danny Schreiber's uh, later work was particularly focused on that. Can you just speak a little bit to, to, uh, towards that, that connection uh, that, uh, that those, those things have with each other, the complexity there? Definitely. You know, one of the things I loved about Dan was that he, w- he was so, so delighted in his refusal yes. of the idea of him, himself as a singular thing, you know, that he really, he really made the point in conversation to, uh, you know, to assert that he was a plural identity, mm-hmm. you know, that he was, a, he was a collective of all sorts of different creatures living in harmony with one another that, you know, and that this, I think that there's, you know, and when you, when you talk about this movement from the sort of modern notion of the individual into postmodern forms of identity, you know, and this is, this is certainly something that I think is uh, catalyzed by the complexity of our lives online, you know, that we, that it's so easy for us to move from one social context to another and in so doing reflect a completely different identity that I think the, the notion of a plural or networked self is, mm. is really rearing its head these days. Mm, yeah, you know? That's true. Um, one of the interesting things uh, about the current paradigm shift that's going on, I'm talking about the sort of, uh, in very general terms, the dominant global paradigm shift from the modern scientific industrial mindset to this relativistic, network-centric, humanistic... Orange to green. Uh, orange to green in spiral dynamics terms. And w- one of the aspects of that is that uh, if we look at the spiral uh, overall, we know that in the collective systems, that is the, the even-numbered systems in Claire Graves' model, we're talking tribal tribalism, uh, authoritarianism, and the emerging paradigm, the, they all have very long-term views of time. And and on the uh, opposite side of the spiral in the individualistic systems, when we're talking about hunter-gatherer, about uh, egocentric warlike, mm. and about the modern scientific industrial, it's always a much shorter perspective on time. And so in this uh, process of moving from a, a short-term outlook to a long-term outlook, the value of, of the kind of stuff that you've studied of looking at these ancient fossils and the records and the, and the uh, cycles and change dynamics that are evident over long, long periods of time is something that we need to shift our attention attention to as a, as a global society in particular in order to cope with the, the radical, uh, rapid disruptive change that's uh, really on our doorstep right now. Yeah, I think it's also, I think it's an important point to make that it's also very, it's an adaptive strategy at the individual level. You know, I think so mm. much of the, the reason that I think about this stuff is actually uh, as an antidote to the fear that emerges in confronting these you know, these uh, radically disruptive, uh, turbulent periods of history to be born into an age of this kind of extraordinary change, you know, there's so much of so, so much of the conversation around what we're living through right now is as though uh, it were completely unprecedented, as though it's a, you know, a radically unique thing, you know, and I think that part of that emerges from you know this this bias towards this short time frame and a linear storytelling you know that and also you know like, like you, you talk about the orange meme you know the sort of modernist uh 
you know, uh, achievement based kind of a thing where, you know, we want to pat ourselves on the back still for being so unique and special. Yeah. And, and, and the fact of it is that, that to see what we're living through right now, purely exclusively through that lens is to, uh, is to reject, is to refuse the opportunities that we have to anchor what's happening now in a much, much deeper frame. And, and I think, you know, to, to, to understand the history of, of evolution and of, you know, mass extinctions and mass evolutionary adaptive irradiations and these, these enormous movements and this, you know, the symphony of earth history is really helpful, at least for me (laughs) as, as a way of, of, sort of normalizing this kind of change just saying you know there are strategies that life has come up with for handling periods of earth history like this you know that we're not we don't have to derive our our tools or our techniques for navigating this kind of turbulence from first principles we can really look at you know the way that bacteria handled the the oxygen catastrophe two billion years ago for some insights for example into you know how to deal with pollution uh and how to you know this this crisis of industrial byproducts and plastic islands you know like absolutely we've got we've got ancestors that we can uh solicit for this you know we have elders that we can turn to beyond the human world for, for sure you know, for, for sure fascinating yeah you're resonating right now on future sense with steve mcdonald and nick jeans welcome back to future sense and we're talking to michael garfield uh, futurist and paleontologist and social media expert at the santa fe institute in new mexico michael um to continue our discussion about these long cycles of time and you know how we can learn from the past to help create and uh, smooth our transition into the future. Um, you, were, you were talking during the break there about uh, storytelling and how we, how we tell stories and, and this fascination we seem to have for mass extinctions. Uh, talk some more about that. And we're talking, as we said to Michael Garfield, we're back online. Michael, yeah, you heard that question about evolutionary narratives, yeah? Yes. Yeah, I think you know the, the the whole thing is that we do we do want to stories. You know, we're <laughs> we're we're very we're story making creatures, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah, but I think it's also you know the first hundred years of of evolutionary science, we were not really aware of the fact that we were telling a story. You know, we've we've had to adjust to the. Um, you know the the sort of postmodern philosophical turn, and and accept that it's not just that when we speak that it's not just about the object of our sentence, but the subject and the verb also. You know who is making the claim, how did we come to this understanding, <laughs> and you know and this is this is a really important thing to consider when we reflect about the ways that the the you know evolutionary thinking has been so painfully horribly abused over the decades by you know laissez-faire capitalism by you know genocidal dictators um you know so it's i think that's part of it that's you know Mm, part of part of i think the reason it's important to regard 
all of these stories as stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, because, and this, I mean, that yeah. storytelling process is such a part of the the communal layers in the, the spiral of consciousness. And you know, here in Australia, in the last couple of years, there were, I, I remember seeing an amazing report in the media of an astrological, uh, sorry, an astronomical event, which was something to do with a supernova, I think. Um, which had been recorded in Aboriginal oral history. And this happened 30,000 years ago. And the story of that particular bright light in the sky was still being told to the present day in, in that uh, local culture yeah. you know, that, that uh, gave rise to this story. And that, that's just incredible to think that like a, an important event like that could be carried down for 30,000 mm. years through oral storytelling. Mm. Mm. Definitely. You know, uh, the... the uh, Fantasy author Neil Gaiman. Oh, yes. uh, he he gave us a, at the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco, which is yeah. an organization you know devoted to this kind of long-term, big-picture thinking, to uh, you know helping us situate ourselves in a, a you know a, a complex time, you know, where we're thinking about the rapid time scales of fashion and social media. And the slower timescales of government and civic infrastructure, and then the even longer timescales of, of, you know, uh, cultural evolution and and natural cycles. And and Neil Gaiman said um, in his talk, he said, if you really want to pass information down through the centuries, you know, for example, if you want to ensure that people don't go digging in your nuclear waste disposal site, that the best thing that you can do is start a religion. Yeah. Because yeah. the facts, <laughs> like the facts don't, ch- you know, the, the way that we understand and contextualize uh, the, you know, the words, the words change their meaning over time, but taboos are remarkably uh, consistent, uh, yes. you know, remarkably stable. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that's kind of an aside. But, no, but yeah, I think very good one. It's, it's good for us to, it's good for us to think if I can get kind of meta about it. Yeah. It's good for us to, to investigate, you know, as evolving creatures ourselves you know that you know as as creatures that understand oh my goodness understand 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 something he's gone again oh there is here we go yeah we lost you for a second we lost you for a second but keep talking Uh, as creatures who understand it's the yeah these are the uh this is this the space monkey challenge of the transoceanic <laughs> live radio call <laughs> yeah i, I think uh, for for writing this with us don't worry we have this amazing uh, national broadband network here we think we're rated about 50 seconds <laughs> 50 seconds in the world yeah. and, and, right and now, dropping so and dropping sliding. daily we're sliding <laughs> <laughs> please continue i mean it's great yeah. it's great michael took i think you're talking you, you refer to a, a term which i i think is, is really good you, you talk about cumulative culture i never really thought about that that humans have this cumulative culture which other animals don't seem to actually have and this is what you're talking about this accumulation and really triggered this notion of me well it's not a again of course it's not a linear thing it's an expanding ever complexifying uh, process of culture that we're involved in this accumulation of culture can you speak a little bit further about that that's fascinating to me yeah well you know i think uh, like you know, like i was saying a moment ago um maybe it was lost over the the signal glitch but the, uh, we are yeah we're losing yes, evolu- in which evolution uh you know sort of leaves us at the station of our human nature and here we are and we're observing this from the outside mm. you know objectively yes. but but that 
that you know the, the the very tools that we use to explore our world and our our human nature are themselves the products of evolution and that this you know that stories are selected for in the same way that organisms are selected for mm. you know and and the, the whole thing about cumulative culture which is you know this notion that that uh, we we externalize our knowledge in books and and other forms of media um, and and so that we can pass them down uh, in ways that transcend the limitations of our individual bodies and 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 even the uh, our individual cultural m- modes you know that that this is uh, I think evidence that the human social, Superorganism is is sort of now the the main player that you know that yeah. at the moment that you know the origin of human civil you know not, not not just human civilization but human culture you know the tribal moment that we came together and we realized that we could teach each other and that we could pass down wisdom you know from our grandparents to our grandchildren that that this represented a moment very much like the uh the origin of the cell when these molecules were sort of bound together inside of a membrane and so you know the the you know origins of life researchers talk about this proto cell in which you know that there was like a moment that things were almost almost a cell but not quite and that you know the you know paleoanthropological researchers propose that there might be a, a social protocell, like a moment that right before the, the tinder lit on, on human society, that, that there were all of these sort of like loose primate troops that were, you know, teach, they were learning from one another, but that they weren't, they weren't sought, like compressing their knowledge mm. into forms that could endure in, down through generations. Mm in any kind of reasonable way that then conferred a survival benefit to the entire community. And so, basically yeah. what makes us unique, if anything, <laughs> yeah, makes us unique as, absolutely. as human beings yeah, absolutely. is simply that, is that our cultural traditions and our tools are now a part of what it means to be human, um, and they, they always have been. And so, you know, this notion that, again, you know, to this, this thing of looking for precedence in the past, uh, to understand what we're living through now, you know, that when people talk about the singularity, uh, you know, this, this moment that the machines sort of supersede us and that we're no longer in control of our <laughs> evolutionary story. It's like, no, the singularity happened 500,000 years ago. You know, oh, that's like, great. I, I think it was never, even longer ago than that. Actually, I, I often say that, you probably. know, the, the singularity has already happened. It's just mm-hmm. human consciousness that's growing into trying to, to comprehend you know what happened um, the, the, in this transition from the the modern scientific industrial to the uh, to the next paradigm um, you know we're leaving behind the individual and individual way of being human and uh, we're also leaving behind our sort of materialistic uh, disconnected from nature uh, worldview and I think those are two really important aspects 
which are, which will change and are changing and that are leading us into this uh, different perspective that you're uh, painting very beautifully here. Um, you know, the first one being that that we are not part of nature, and this this has been the you know the common uh, held be- commonly held belief during the the last old paradigm since the Enlightenment, certainly. Um, yeah, and uh, you know that's changing, and uh, it's it's most immediately changing to reconnect with Earth uh, as our most immediate representation of, of Mother Nature herself, but also you know nature extends into the cosmos and and perhaps even into other universes. So I mean, nature nature is infinite. Um, and uh, reconnecting with that and, and thinking differently as part of that instead of thinking as you know as if we're separate from that is, is key to this. Mm. Um, and you know I think I think what you've just said there is a really great example of, of how our thinking can change to embrace that and start to see ourselves as being, a participant in this process of unfolding cycles and and also in a two-way communication with the rest of nature right it's not a one-way uh, discussion it's not just us observing it's us actually being embedded in mm. and learning from that also and finding communication pathways too mm. yeah 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 definitely uh, yeah that's a perfect example of the story itself i think as the ev- evolutionary uh, object yeah. or you know or process that like you know like you talk about with with uh, value memes you know that these are things that emerge within a particular uh, you know container you know a, a social context of of tools and beliefs and traditions and you know that I think you know that to the extent that we're actually just sort of being operated on by our stories you know, I think it's it's really actually beautiful. Like uh, since the 1960s, when Lynn Margulis introduced the idea that complex life actually emerged out of intimate collaborations between simpler forms of life. Um, you know, and, and that at first was very mm-hmm. controversial, and now it's accepted. And 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 so I think, you know, it's 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 in a kind of weird meta way. I I really enjoy watching the stories. And the, the ways that these stories uh, act upon us as changing to suit the environment that their changes to us have created, you know, because it's like this, the, you know, the, there's this, there's a, a, a ratcheting effect where as we, as, as society becomes more complex, it leads to it requires of us more complex ways of thinking yeah. interacting communicating about these things and then that new complexity just creates more complexity it does it's a two-way yeah. street you know we, we talk about this double helix model of graves you know and we one is the complexity of life conditions and the other is the adaptive nature of human consciousness and and when life conditions become more complex human consciousness adapts to operate in more complex ways and and then we create more complexity ourselves in our own life conditions so it's a it's a, a spiraling you know interactive process exciting you're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. 10.21 here on Future Sense at 11 o'clock coming up, Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond, as is true every Monday. And uh, Michael Garfield, we've been talking to today, uh, paleontologist and futurist uh, from Santa Fe, or well, he lives in Santa Fe, originally from Austin, Texas, and um, also uh, host and producer of Future Fossils podcast. So we're talking about all sorts of things, and it's a very rich conversation, much to talk about, much to think about. But we're going to sort of uh, bring it to uh, a pretty common theme and that is the theme of time itself right now 
right now. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Good day. And uh, Michael, you, you suggested maybe uh, turning the tables here and asking me some questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, one of the things that I, I am really curious about, uh, you know, given the amount of time that you've spent on spiral dynamics and, and more generally on human developmental psychology is the way that time is is understood uh, differently by all of these different layers. Hmm. And, you know, this is something I'd love to get into like much more detail with you on my own show when we when we get that together. But I'm really curious how you think that living online, living in a planetary culture uh, is is changing the way that we understand that the, just the, the ideas or the experience of past, present and future. Yeah, sure. Um, what a, it might be useful just for me to step through the the uh, different worldviews, the layers of consciousness. Maybe starting at, at uh, blue or four, which was the absolutistic, uh, authoritarian uh, worldview that emerged around uh, or, or following the agricultural revolution. And um, that was really the emergence of cause and effect thinking. So it was a time when we moved out of the what's known as the pre-rational zone where our behavior, our, our being was really dominated by urgent instincts and very much in the moment, in the present. And the, uh, the frontal lobe uh, development um, was completed and we, we developed this capacity to think about uh, you know, what we were doing, think about concepts, and, and the rational mind sort of became dominant uh, in our state of being. And, and that's where we saw the emergence of this cause and effect uh, thinking where we could sort of think in a very linear way, but we could think about, okay, if I do this now, then something's going to change in the future. Or if I don't do this now, something's going to change in the future. Um, so that was very much a, a product of that blue fourth layer uh, consciousness and then from there moving back to the individual side of the spiral with them the, the uh, scientific industrial revolutions the enlightenment the emergence of this modern worldview modern perspective on on being human um, time became a precious resource and we were still kind of locked in this linear concept of time but we had uh, multiple choices in terms of the future and what we did with our time and Graves called this particular layer of consciousness multiplistic for that reason because it broke out of linear thinking and all of a sudden there were there were possibilities in the future whereas uh, previously the future was was absolutely linear and it was like if this then that uh, but now in the modern uh, era we have this multiplistic uh, view which gives us options and if I do this this way now then that's going to be the future and if I do this this other way now then something else is going to be the future so we broke out into multiplicity and what's happening now is we're uh, transitioning from that into the next way of being human which is this relativistic way um, where it's very network centric we're very focused on the human experience human values and our with each of these uh, steps forward in an evolutionary sense our senses are literally expanding so we have you know a deeper um, capacity to access information in all the different dimensions of, of our being and so the probably the best example of relativistic is uh, relativistic thinking in, in relation to time is of course Einstein's theory of relativity where he figured out that okay you know if we go traveling through space then that person who's traveling through space is going to experience time differently than me here and so we're branching out into you know what is this this network uh, still on a level like a flat uh, playing field so there's still not a lot of dimensional depth there 
Um, but this idea that someone else can be experiencing time different than I am, um, and and it's this connecting of the dots between different human experiences, which is you know blossoming at this time in history, and we're able to think about, for example, other religious beliefs as being somehow connected to our religious beliefs and having some you know similarity, a similar underlying concepts, and maybe it's just the same thing, but it's being experienced from a different human perspective. And we also have this capacity to to um, experience internally what it's like to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and and uh, conceptualize their different perspective on the world. Uh, so that that's how I see time changing most immediately. So in do you current. do you think do you think then that uh, that the idea of a future in a networked society is really even useful i mean i know that you guys talk about it you, you quote the the excellent william gibson quote that the the future is already here it's just distributed unevenly yeah and, and so you know yeah. when i think about silicon valley people talking about the future like the idea that there is a singular future or that it's arriving at the same time for everyone seems a bit like stayed it's, it, it's, yeah it's very old school it's very old school and and i mean the simple fact is because uh humanity is spread across this spectrum of consciousness you know we're not all at the same place we're not all experiencing reality in the same way through the same worldview and that, that's been a, a a very broadly accepted perspective in the past of, but you know fundamentally when we start talking about human con- human consciousness and human nature we're all the same mm. uh, you know we're all going to respond the same to, to various things but now we're teasing that out and this is only really coming you know due to developmental psychology which itself is really poking into second tier consciousness it's this um, capacity to start to perceive different dimensions of consciousness mm. and that's you know that the fullness of understanding of that is not really evident in this most immediate paradigm shift from modern to, to postmodern or relativistic but what we can do is we can we can look at this these kinds of models and we can see the diversity in them so rather than seeing the the uh, multi-dimensionality at layer six or green uh, relativistic we're seeing the diversity so we can get this idea just as uh, Einstein did that okay there's diversity of experience here it's not just all the one experience you know everybody from has their own cosmic address as Ken Wilber would say and they they perceive reality from that address um, and, and so uh, to, to answer your question yes you know there are multiple nows not just multiple futures or pasts there are multiple nows and everybody is experiencing their own now in a different way through their own window of consciousness and and there are of course I mean even in the, the sort of modern scientific industrial thinking there are multiple possible futures um, but now we can start to ponder the fact that okay if, if everybody on the planet is, is experiencing now in a different way then there's got to be multiple multiple um, uh, actual futures, you know, for taking that same perspective on mm. things. It's fascinating, too. I just, isn't that, <clears throat> sorry, isn't that kind of a, a problem, given your, uh, you know, this, I mean, it seems like <laughs> we're, you know, if it, it, it's kind of important that we sort of agree on a direction, don't you think? Or okay, am, well, is that hopelessly naive? That, look, um, you know, we can we can agree uh, if we are coming from the same value system, you know, with the same worldview, because uh, because we have that commonality of perspective of worldview. You know, we, we're not going to get absolute agreement between different worldviews because to the, the the basic framework for making sense of reality is fundamentally different. We can we can uh, come to an understanding that where we understand each other and. 
particularly if we're you know we have a, a fuller awareness of the differences in worldviews or, or value systems. Mm. Um, but uh, this idea that we all need to agree is an extremely strong theme in the emerging paradigm. Agree, you know, it's yeah. everywhere. I mean, if you, you know, even even to the point of it starting to displace science, and there have been scientific papers written. I discovered one the other day, written about this very subject, that the the issue of consensus is creeping into science and being given, you know, a status in the same way that uh, material evidence would have been given status. Uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and that is that is an issue. It's a confounding issue for science. I mean, it's a huge issue and, and perhaps most prominent in the global warming discussion where, you know, people roll out this statistic of 94% of scientists agree, right? <laughs> Which is not, <laughs> that's not data. You know, it's not it's not hard data. It's it's social science, not hard science. So, but but it is, it's a very important theme and it's, you know, it's, it's good that you've touched on it because people are feeling this and it's, part of the dynamic is we're moving from an individual way of being human to a communal way of being human and every communal way now and in the past has been all about conforming and learning how to be together you know how do we how do we cope together uh, in the face of all this change well the first thing is we've got to agree uh, at some level so yes it, it's a very important issue mm. amazing you, you talk, Michael, uh, quoting you here about the, the powerful new paradigm in evolution emerging from the interference pattern. And I, I know it's not entirely the same thing, but it occurred to me <coughs> as uh, Steve was talking there that uh, your perspective on that interference pattern of research in mathematics, evolutionary biology, computer science, developmental psychology, paleoanthropology, and the origins of life. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because that seems to be, to me anyway, some part of the equation that we're talking about here that actually the interference pattern itself is much stronger than any direct or obvious one direction that we can go in. Well, yeah, you know, much like Steve was just saying, you know, there is, it's kind of, uh, I guess, foolish for us to think that we're all going, you know, if we start to think of the, the, the social body, and again, you know, I really want to lean on this, this argument that we are, we're like, for as long as we've been humans, you know, I think that the, the, the emerging myth here is that we have, you know, the, the, the emerging network sort of green myth is that we have always been collective and, and tribal and networked. And so, you know, to look at it in that way, to look at the, the history of humanity, to not be the, the history so much of individuals, but as the, you know, the history of communities and, and communities that extend and beyond our current understanding of human, you know, that, that we, uh, we have to, in order to live in a networked civilization, that, that we have to adopt adaptive stories that, uh, that include, you know, technology and the, 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 you know, the, what we have called nature yes. as, you know, as not other than you know that we've we've sort of you know we've cloistered ourselves into these membranes and so at any rate you know to see it in this way to to open the the boundaries of our humanity to to participate in and include ourselves uh include in ourselves you know what darwin called the tangled bank of symbiotic evolutionary relationships not just with other living creatures but with the geology and the technology of mm. this planet then uh, the interference pattern is, you know, you, you can see 
these dynamics uh, playing within a complex cultural ecology of different minds at different points in their development, holding different cultural understandings and linguistic framings as, as sort of tissues or muscle systems within a, a, a vast planetary organism. And so you start looking at like the ways that people on opposite sides of the political aisle are, are working together in spite of their apparent conflict. You know, for example, like, uh, like a bicep and a tri or like, you know, your, the muscles of your legs, you know, like if one side of your leg were to win the argument, then you'd fall over. That's <laughs> true. You need two wings you to know, fly, so, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. So the, the question of, of uh, you know, wh- how the, the world's disclosed by all of these different, is sometimes uh, arguing methods and perspectives, you know, what, what emerges at their intersection? And I think... You know, to me, what what I see, like one of the one of the kind of major things that I see in that is that we are, uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, that uh, we are storytelling creatures as you know as an adaptive strategy to living together, which is itself an adaptive strategy to surviving in a, in a complex and chaotic universe, and so our you know the way that we see things there's there's like a mobius strip here where if you tug on if you tug on your understanding of the the natural world he's disappeared again if you can hear us michael we're trying to get you back yeah reconnecting we're on skype here folks and uh, talking to michael garfield in santa fe new mexico <laughs> last few minutes of this are you, we, you there i think we got you back you're again back, yeah you're back yeah yeah, yeah. We, we lost you for a second there yeah <laughs> For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM. 10.38 here on Bay FM on Future Sense, and we've got Michael back for the last few minutes. We've got about five more minutes, Michael. Let's see if we can finish that thought. Here we are, and there's nothing more important at this time when we're going through this global paradigm shift as connection and the need for connection, and that's being demonstrated to us. The connection keeps dropping out during our call here, but, you know. And thanks for your text, folks. Uh, intriguing show, says uh, says Melody. Thanks thanks very much. Uh, yeah, so let's let's finish that. You were talking about the interference patterning. I, I don't know exactly where we lost you, but... Um, Maps you can pick it up. Oh gosh! Well, I think, you know, <laughs> the bottom. You know, I think what it what it all boils down to is that you know, looking at all of these different fields, trying to find a way to bring them together into a single understanding. You know, what it brings me to is is that that uh, you know, if you push far enough in your inquiry into what we think of as the natural world, then you end up having to address the issue of psychology. And, you know, the, the, the who is asking the question. But if you push far enough into a study of the mind and the way that we come up with models of our world, then you end up with, you know, you end up with questions about how it is that we came to this point. You know, the, the context, the, the evolutionary uh, environment that we have adapted to. And so, you know, really, I think that the, the, the new paradigm I see emerging in the evolutionary sciences is beyond this sort of, you know, the evolutionary psychology thing and into, you know, ex, you know, not just, oh, this is how men and women are, you know, and this is why, you know, social media has learned, you know, how they've figured out how to, like, capitalize on your attention and all this stuff. It's a step further. It's, it's about 
you know, the limits of the knowable and our relationship to mystery, you know, like what it is to be, you know, uh, where, you know, what it is to call something random or to say it's, it's not, it's that it has a pattern to it. And this all sounds very vague. <laughs> but, no, no, but I, I think it, what you're saying is very important because it's about understanding our own limitations and, uh, and by knowing what we can't know or, you know, more specifically what we don't know, um, then it provides us an opportunity to expand, you know, our, our ways of knowing, I think, and, and just to have deeper conversations around that. But, you know, when the worst place that we can be is thinking that we know everything and, you know, there's a bit of that going on around the world at the moment where people are totally convinced they know it, all the sciences, yes. and there's no questions to be asked. I mean, that's the most dangerous place that we can be from an evolutionary adaptation kind of perspective, right? Yeah, and the, the, second, the second most dangerous place is thinking that we can know everything. Yes. You know, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is willful will ignorance. I mean, yeah. we've, we've known, we've known, you know, from girdles and completeness theorems for like a century that that's, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there was another, Go yeah, ahead. more research recently on, on unsolvable mathematical problems, you know, and I think that there's something about, it changes the flavor of discovery and scientific inquiry when we accept that we're not going to figure it all out. Yeah. And that even if we even if we invent a machine that can figure out things that we can't understand, that we're back to a, kind of a theological question. Like, how do we know that we that we can trust what the machine is telling us? Yeah. You know, like, how, how would we even recognize if this planet is a single giant intelligent superorganism? If, if Google, like, became conscious, how could we even recognize it? Yeah. You know, and, and that really that kind of <laughs> that's a dog barking. <laughs> I think I think, uh, yeah, it's this question of, of our relationship to the transcendence, I think, is really where. We, we are ultimately and I think that you know that in another few decades that we're going to have a very different attitude in the sciences and yes. in the humanities with respect to transcendental mystery and mm -hmm. you know what is and is not possible with the human project and I think that, that you know that's that, that kind of humbling uh, could not come any you know, couldn't come soon enough. Yeah, uh, you know, and an, another big issue here too is this idea that we're all alone here, you know, and we are the only example of consciousness that's evolving, and there's no one else out there. And you know, uh, I mean, that's that's obviously something that's going to shift in the future, and it's I think it's a big limitation on on uh, human nature, you know, to be still in this place where we think that we're the only consciousness that exists in the entire universe, and therefore, you know, we've got to figure it all out ourselves. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then, then of course, then it, you know, that means that everything that we see is just like ripe for our exploitation, which is you know, nonsense. So, like, I would love to see the end of the twentieth, the twenty-first century, be one in which we have a you know a planetary congress where humans are represented and dolphins are represented mm -hmm. and the wood wide web of mm -hmm. mycorrhizal relationships has has a voice you know yeah and and uh i don't know how what it takes for us to get there but i think it starts with us accepting that you know all of our models are themselves just sophisticated stories that have adapted to a particular psychological and social context 
Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. We we have to wind up soon. That's, we, that's we're great. Short on time. Yeah, that's that's great, Michael. That's a lovely little summary there. Really, really like that. Yeah, um, I, I was just going <laughs> to just to sort of throw in at the end here. You know, the, looking at the time spans uh, in our past. You know, of the the evolution of worldviews and these major transformations that happen, and we move to a, a new layer of consciousness or add a new layer of consciousness. Uh, I, I should say, um, you know, the time spans of, of those oh, yeah. various paradigms getting shorter and shorter and shorter imply that uh, what we're moving into now, this this sixth layer, the relativistic way of being human, is most likely going to be the shortest lived paradigm so far. And it may even be, you know, in terms of the, the dominance of that particular way of being human at a, at a global level, it may only last a couple of decades. Mm. And then, of course, immediately following that, we've got this massive quantum leap in human consciousness which has shown up in the in the research and which uh, a few pathfinders you know have completed already um, here in real life and um, and so from that perspective what we're moving into right now is really the last blast of the rational mind's dominance of, of you know our human nature and it's inevitably going to lead to an overload a place where there's just so much information available to us that we can't compute and make sense of it with the rational mind which is really the evolutionary tension which is going to flick us into this quantum leap that's coming very very soon actually <laughs> although of course you know the, the the notion of linear time here is is itself suspect yeah. well it's right? also collapsing so. exactly yes yes i agree michael garfield we'll have to leave it there and uh, i accept suspect we'll probably come back and talk to you another time in the future um, paleontologist futurist uh, and um, um, uh, host and producer of future fossils podcast I was looking through my notes again here and he's currently also and he's in the day he's got a day job communication strategist for the Santa Fe Institute which we didn't talk about but it is the world's preeminent complex systems science research organization thanks so much Michael for joining us yeah it's been a wonderfully rich conversation yeah. thank you so much we'll talk to you thank again thank you both thanks for putting up with the line issues yeah, no worries <laughs> no worries talk to you soon Talk to you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Cheers. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Last few minutes here of Future Sense for this morning. It's 10.49 here with uh, Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans and uh, our special guest before, Michael Garfield. I thought that was uh, fascinating and opens up more questions than we answered. And hopefully those of you who are interested in this stuff got something from that please uh, and thanks for all your texts we've mentioned quite a number of them there's a few texts here we won't get to this morning but appreciate all those texts 043734119 at any time you can also text us right now if you want to a um, couple of other things we want to just mention before we leave this morning Steve you've got a bit of uh, information there economic information planetary economics hmm. Yeah, I just wanted something. to mention that uh, something on our radar is mm. economic disruption next month. That's May. Mm. And um, this is showing up particularly in Martin Armstrong's algorithm as a liquidity crisis. And there are many, many um, different indicators that have cropped up over the last months and months and years that uh, this might be on the cards. And I, I had a, a, a chat over the weekend to uh, my futurist friend, Benjamin Butler, um, who comes from a finance background, and he was uh, he was also in line with this prediction and and uh, thinking that we're up for a liquidity crisis. And uh, there've been a, a few uh, issues contributing to this one, contributing to it rather. One of them is um, the changes in the. Um, quantitative easing situation where they, they kind of drop that strategy. Uh, problems with government bonds, not just in the US, but uh, internationally as well. And, uh, and uh, Benjamin was telling me that the uh, German government is now issuing bonds that require the uh, acquirer of the bond to pay the government rather than getting paid interest on the bond, which is uh, a bit of a, a mind flip. 
but that's happening. Uh, and uh, there have been numerous strategic issues that have arisen for investors over the last year or more where uh, people have been shifting their money out of things like government bonds and into different investments. And as part of that, money has been get, getting locked up. And one specific example is in Turkey where uh, the government there has said people who had money invested in Turkey couldn't have it, access to it. And so, so that's an issue, and it's it's one of many, many issues. Again, uh, complex situation, multiple um, issues coming together to create uh, interference patterns, as you were talking about before, Nick. And uh, the outcome looks like uh, it may well be a major liquidity crisis during May, um, meaning simply that people can't get access to their money when they want it. And we're talking about uh, large-scale investments specifically. So. That's something to keep in mind. And parallel to all of that developing, uh, the crypto market has woken mm. up again. So it's been a long, long hibernation over winter, uh, which has lasted, gosh, uh, a year or more for mm. the crypto market, where we had this massive slide last year, which really bottomed out in December. Um, and then we've had a slow uh, awakening over the last month or so, and it's, it's starting to fire up now, which is very, very interesting. And it's going to be wonderful and amazing to watch the interaction between the mainstream market situation and the crypto market situation and what unfolds in May and how they play off against each other. Mm, very interesting. A couple of other things that have been on our radar and just to mention quickly that uh, John Pilger, uh, the great Australian slash British journalist uh, who's gone up against <laughs> forces of governments including our own uh, over many, many years as a documentary filmmaker and a journalist. John Pilger is in Byron, presented by the Nagara Institute on Wednesday night. You're going to Steve, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to go. It should be very interesting. And uh, yeah. there, uh, there may be some tickets on, uh, tickets left, a few tickets. You can go to the Nagara Institute, N-G-A-R-A website for those tickets. We've also been watching a little bit about 5G. Uh, I've had uh, on my other show on North Coast Positive on Fridays, I've, I've talked about with some local representatives who are up against 5G locally. Uh, but we've been having a bit of a look at that and there is some, some movement around 5G in the world. The Belgian government has just... Uh, announced that Brussels is halting its 5G plans due to health effects. The statement was made by Celine Fremolt, the Minister for the, of the Government of Brussels' capital region, responsible for housing, quality of life, environment and energy and the like. And uh, they are, are halting uh, their 5G rollout in that country to have a look at the health effect. Meanwhile, I think it's Korea which is going the other direction. It, it looks like uh, South Korea is going to be the first large-scale rollout. So uh, unfortunately, they look like being the guinea pigs. To, you know, So we'll, we'll actually start to see some, if there is going to be any health impact, we'll, we'll start to see that uh, quite possibly there. And first. we've uh, we, we came across, uh, uh, you came across, and I'm familiar with this chap, Sasha Stone, who I think still lives in Bath. He's actually just put out uh, very recently, um, you know, about two weeks ago, a, uh, a YouTube video. It's called 5G Apocalypse, the Extinction Event. It's already had uh, nearly a quarter of a million views. Uh, you might want to check that out. It's on YouTube. Uh, the 5G Apocalypse, the Extinction Event. It's a one and a half hour doco or so. It's quite long. I've only watched a little bit of it yeah, so far. I haven't watched it at all. And I just want to make the point that we're not necessarily endorsing no. anything that's in this video. That's so right. we're not saying that it's good or bad or real or unreal. But, but it's if you just, are concerned, yeah, if you're interested. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for your text. And uh, just someone's just written, hi, Nick and Steve, bring it on. Missed all but the last few lines of that interview. So I hope I get to listen to it later on. Looking, to forward, looking forward to more disruption and change. Um, and you can, of course, check out all of our, uh, our shows, which are edited up uh, with um, all the sponsorships and other stuff uh, and music uh, edited out. And that podcast on future, at Future Sense Show, you can go to our Twitter account and check out that. And uh, futuresense.it future is the website with all the links to the different places you can Fantastic. get the podcast. 
Very good. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us here, and we will be back, of course, next Monday morning here on BFM from 9 to 11 a.m. Thanks, Steve. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on BayFM in Byron Bay, Australia, at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.